Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is Ron Bentley. And this is John Harmon. This is the third episode in our five-episode series on Genesis 1 through 3. Our goal is to read these first three chapters of Genesis in their ancient context. How would ancient readers perceive what they heard? In our last episode, we worked through the first creation story in these chapters, and that extended just into the second chapter, verse 3 of chapter 2, to be precise. In that story, the heavens and earth, Genesis words, are formed and then they are filled. But most importantly, this is all done by God. That first creation story also included the creation of human beings, but specifically that human beings are made in the image of God. Ron, we talked about how in that ancient context, being created in God's image primarily points to our status and role in creation. Mm. We represent God in God's earthly dominion. We are to rule over the created world as God's vice regents, we said. That is, as God himself would rule. Well, in this episode, we continue into Genesis chapter 2 and into a second creation story. This story focuses more specifically on these brand new human beings. Let's go see what it says. The next creation story begins in verse 4 of Genesis 2. It reads, This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. John, you pointed out that there's a subtle shift in perspective here. Chapter 1 opens telling us that God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens comes first. Here in chapter 2, we get that formula repeated, and then it's reversed. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I'm a little bit puzzled by this. I'd have written it off to just a variation in the language, but is this now an earth-first perspective? What's going on here? (laughs) Yeah, sort of. We certainly might say Genesis 1 was the top-down view. Okay. God's eye view, so to speak. Genesis 2 is much more of the view from the ground. All right. Uh, There's also a shift in what God is called when we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Okay. In the first account, God is simply God, Elohim, which is a general term used in the Bible for God. In this second story, God is Yahweh Elohim, which pairs the general term Elohim with the specific personal covenant name of God that was revealed to Moses and later to Israel, the name Yahweh. Uh, Then this would seem to be another shift in perspective. The focus is now specifically on the relationship between the sovereign God of heavens and earth and human beings. We already knew from the first story that humans are more than just creations. The second story appears to hammer that point home. We humans are creations with a special relationship to the creator. Right. And notice one more thing about the opening verse of the story that begins here in chapter two. This is the first instance of a phrase that we see many more times in Genesis. It's, this is the account of. Yeah. If we read it a little more literally, it says, these are the descendants of, or these are the generations of, as some translations render that. That's a way of saying, this is what became of something, referring to the family line that follows. In this case, it's, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. What follows is the family line of creation, so to speak, namely, 
the first humans. John, when you first pointed this out, I had this inkling in the back of my mind that I was supposed to remember something from my Old Testament courses in seminary. Mm-hmm. This phrase shows up next in Genesis 5.1. This is the account of, or this is what became of Adam's family line. Another example, Genesis 6.9, this is what became of Noah and his family. Precisely. And those aren't the only occurrences. This is one of the ways that Genesis itself structures the story that it tells all the way through the book. Well, much like Genesis 1, this next creation story opens with a barren, empty world. This is a negative state, almost a state of nothingness. That's quite common in ancient creation stories. The initial focus is on what was not, so to speak, before the creation of what is. Okay, well, the story reads, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. It was a fundamental fact of existence in the ancient worldview that humans cultivate land and God sends rain to water the land. Okay, That's one of the ways that they thought about life itself. The absence of these things is one way of painting a picture of the uncreated world, similar to how the earth was formless and empty in Genesis 1-2. All right, so in answer to the lack of anyone to cultivate the land, then God created a human being. Again, the story reads, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There's some ancient imagery here, Ron, that's worth our attention. It wouldn't have been lost on an ancient Israelite reader, but it can sneak by us. The picture of God creating a human from the dirt is an image of God as a potter. The artist works the clay on his wheel and in that process is is bonded to his work. And in using the earth as the raw material for humans' creation, we get the idea that humans are also closely connected to the rest of creation. John, when we first talked about this, you told me to go look up some images of the Egyptian god Khnum. That's K-H-N-U-M. And the images pop up pretty quickly if you search it. Even to an ancient Near East novice like myself, (laughs) the imagery seemed crystal clear. Here was a ram-headed god sitting in front of a table, fashioning a little person. Yeah, It did bother me that the human lacked the circular symmetry I'd expect from a spinning table, but I suspect I'm looking for modern precision (laughs) where none is to be expected. (laughs) Only you would worry about that, Ron. (laughs) But that's right. This imagery of God as a potter was known elsewhere, especially in Egypt. Okay. Of course, we want to remember that the Torah, or law, of which Genesis is a part, tells us that the Hebrews spent 400 years in Egypt. So Egyptian imagery and theology were all around them for a very long time. We're perhaps not surprised to see some of these images used to teach Israel about creation, even though, as we've been pointing out all along, the Genesis story challenges the stories of the surrounding cultures in what they actually say about God and about creation. There are stories and iconographic images from Egypt of the god Khnum creating a human on a potter's wheel, as you described, Ron, and then breathing life into it. Now, Khnum was the god who ruled over the water, including the Nile River, which watered the land of Egypt and made it fertile for growing. So Khnum was thought of as a bringer of life. In some myths, he fashioned human children out of clay on his wheel and put them in their mother's wombs. 
the Hebrew story here in Genesis replaces Kanum with the Lord God. Okay. It isn't meant to tell us anything about biology itself, <laughs> right. but rather to identify God as the true creator of life. The message to Israel was, if you thought anyone else was the author of life, then stand corrected. I am your creator. Okay. And it is God the creator then who breathes life into the human. When God does that, the human becomes a nephesh in Hebrew, often translated a living being or a living soul. Again, this isn't a biological treatise, but it is theologically very significant and very rich. Uh, and again, we've talked about this a lot elsewhere, but let's review because people continue to argue about this. The message of Genesis is crystal clear. Right from the start, we were created as physical beings. Right. We are physical beings that have the breath of God in us. Uh, we can't over-visualize this, as I think you say it, John. Uh, we yep. can't inject a lot of precision that isn't there, but we do have to recognize the vitally important perspective that this expresses. We are not disembodied souls around which God wrapped a physical body merely to serve as a container. We've missed the point if we think that our true essence is spirit and our physical bodies are just temporary houses, our bodies are not ultimately irrelevant. They are part of the inherent goodness of human creation. Now, some listeners may be screaming inside at this point. They may be <laughs> dying to say, but, 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 but Paul said, <laughs> if that's what you're thinking, just sit tight. Paul probably did not say exactly what you're thinking. Mm. There's certainly something wrong with our current bodies in their fallen state. They have to be replaced, restored, regenerated, recreated into something more permanent and incorruptible and eternal. However, embodied existence is what God intended for us all along, and Paul would agree. <laughs> but we're getting way ahead of ourselves right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So let's bring it back to Genesis. <laughs> Speaking of what you call embodied existence, Ron, the narrator in chapter 2 calls the man Adam. That is very close to the Hebrew word for ground or dirt or clay, Adama. Okay. The Lord God formed the Adam from the dust of the Adama. There's a wordplay in the Hebrew text that gets lost in translation, but the connection between the human and the created earth is very close. Okay. And the wordplay helps to sustain that idea. Both words continue to be used in the chapter to carry the point. Immediately after the creation of the man, we hear a name we have not heard before, Eden. Mm. When God created the man, he also created a home for him. It was in a location on the earth called Eden. Now, within Eden was a garden. And John, you've pointed out that Eden is not the garden itself. Eden is larger. But God planted the garden inside Eden. The text even gives us some geographical names. And again, I'm an ancient Near East amateur, but even I recognize names like Tigris and Euphrates. That immediately leaves me thinking, aha, where is this supposed to be on a map? Yeah, if, if we are reading this consistently as an ancient Israelite would, if we read this in the genre of ancient creation stories, 
the specific geography is not the point. Okay. The ancient Israelite did not rush out to draw a map of this like we (laughs) moderns want to do. Shoot! (laughs) There are, no doubt, some recognizable geographical names in the text that seem to set this in the world of Mesopotamia. That really shouldn't surprise us that much. Mm -hmm. But the focus, however, is on the fact that the garden was watered by God, and from there, so was the rest of the earth. So, there is water, and there is someone to cultivate the earth. Creation, life. Okay. Remember also that God is present on the earth in this Genesis story. We mentioned that this is the perspective that emerges as the story opens. Now, there's a lot of scholarship around Eden being God's dwelling place. Okay. In context, the lush garden imagery and the references in Ezekiel 28, for example, to Eden being a mountain point to an understanding of Eden as a sort of temple or as a divine home where God and God's heavenly council could dwell. I think that is a correct way to understand the imagery, but there's no time to dig into all the pieces that make up those conclusions. But it's no stretch to say, though, that when God places the man in Eden, it demonstrates that God intends to have fellowship with humans. Okay. That's why they were created. God and humans were supposed to dwell together in Eden. As God's image, humans were to care for the garden and represent God's rule to the rest of the earth. In other words, humans were to make the whole earth like Eden. How? Remember from Genesis 1, by multiplying, filling the earth, and being God's vice regents, subduing the earth by ruling as God's representatives or God's images. John, I know we don't have time to go down this road right now, but I cannot help but think of that final image in the last few chapters of Revelation. There's this new heaven and new earth. Exactly. It's a vision of a new Eden-like creation throughout. It restores what God intended for the whole earth all along. But you're right. We can't get into all of that right now. Fair enough. The creation story here in Genesis 2 also tells us that there were two trees in the middle of the garden. Yes. There were all kinds of trees provided for food, but two were special. They were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God put the man in the garden, God gave this command. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. From the beginning, there was a choice. It was God's creation. God got to say, this is how things are going to work. Say no to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Say yes to the tree of life. Humans were part of God's creation. They were not the creator. Their role and the parameters for their relationship with the creator was God's to determine. God, after all, was the true king of the heavens and the earth. You know, Ron, to my knowledge, there aren't any clear ancient parallels to the tree of life or to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are sacred tree motifs in ancient literature, but nothing that I know of that directly parallels what we see in Genesis 2 here and again in Genesis 3. So we don't have a lot to go on beyond the immediate context of this story when it comes to these trees. You know, we've talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil before on the podcast. You made an important point that made perfect sense to me. The knowledge of good and evil isn't merely an awareness that those exist or even knowing what good and evil are. In this context, the knowledge of good and evil means 
taking into our hands what defines good and evil rather than leaving it in God's hands. It's Mm -hmm. usurping God's prerogative over those definitions. Taking the knowledge of good and evil is in essence saying, God, I do not accept your authority to tell me what is good and what is evil. I will make that determination on my own, even if it means I call evil what you call good and good what you call evil. Exactly. Eating from that tree means rebellion against God. God is the one who has the legitimate claim on making the rules. God decides what is right and wrong in God's creation. Humans should depend on God for these things and not try to seize them independently. Only God has the wisdom to decide and to effect what is good, that is, what advances life, and what is evil, that is, what hinders life. According to this chapter, the consequences of rejecting God's rule, the consequences of elevating ourselves and usurping God's prerogative is death. I've said it before, I'll repeat it now, death is the opposite of life. Life is what God intended for us, death destroys it. For all the good people intend when they say it, the phrase death is a part of life is just, permit me to say it, dead wrong. (laughs) Oh boy. But we've spent a lot of time with that elsewhere, so I'll let it go for now. The beginning of Genesis chapter 2 was the creation of the man, and the last part of the chapter narrates the creation of the woman. God identifies something not good about the world. Here that means creation is incomplete in some way. Creation is not yet fulfilling all the purposes that God had for it, and that's how we're understanding this term good in the creation accounts here. Ron, we've been talking all along about context and how we read the Genesis creation stories best when we see them in the world to which they were first written. Something important surfaces at this point when we do that. As far as I know, once again, there are no other ancient Near Eastern accounts that tell about the creation of woman specifically. Other literature recounts stories of the creation of humankind in general, but the Bible introduces something unique into that tradition, and it isn't an appendix or an afterthought at all. In Genesis 2, then here, the creation account of the man, Adam, is told in one verse. The story of woman's creation is six verses long. Against that ancient backdrop, John, then it would seem that this is a little bit surprising. However, as we've been saying, the Bible is using familiar containers to say something different about what's true in creation, things that challenge the theologies of the day, if you will. Yes, here in what perhaps was looking like merely another account of humankind's creation, but with God as the creator, the Bible has something important to add. By including this in the story and by telling it in this way, Genesis is revealing something very important about humanity. The word for the woman that is used in the story leading up to her actual creation is an interesting one. It's the word helper. Okay. Uh, That could be a difficult term if we take it out of context, especially if we neglect the fact that central to the purpose of woman's creation is that creation was incomplete without her. Okay. Just as it would be incomplete without the man. God's purposes for creation could not be fulfilled without both of them. And the text even tells us that the woman's absence was not good. So... 
God creates a helper. But a helper with what? (laughs) There is no suggestion we need to point out of the woman being a subordinate or an inferior, an assistant of sorts. The woman helps the man to be human, to complete humanity, and to keep the garden and to keep God's single commandment for humankind. Well, God creates the woman out of the same stuff as the man. In other words, God does not return to the dust of the earth to begin something entirely new. Instead, uh, so to speak, God brings the man back to the potter's wheel. God brought back what he had begun in order to complete it. Only at this point could the creation of humankind in the second creation story here in Genesis 2 be recognized as complete. And the man responds, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. The man recognizes the woman is unique, not merely another of the living things God created to inhabit the earth. They are part of each other. Together, they are humankind. Notice in the story that the narrator names the man in relation to the ground or the earth itself, right? right? Adam, Adam. Remember the wordplay that we talked about. But Adam names himself in Genesis 2 in relation to his wife, and he uses another Hebrew wordplay. Okay. Adam calls himself Ish, and he calls his wife Isha. Adam seems to understand what has happened in this completing of humanity with the creation of the woman. Well, as the chapter comes to a close, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Ron, culturally, this would make ancient readers sit up and take notice. Okay. This is obviously a reference to the marital bond. Mm -hmm. And the narrator makes the note specifically that this marital bond between the man and the woman is greater than the parental bond, and it takes precedence over it. In its ancient context, this would sound unusual. It would be a a polemic of sorts. It definitely challenges the way these relationships were viewed. I may be reading into it, but I can see how the parental bond is the natural one. We don't pick our parents in the natural order of things. We're born to them. Allegiance to family seemed to come naturally in ancient societies. Marriage, on the other hand, represents a decision. In many modern societies, this is a decision of the man and woman themselves. In many ancient societies, it was a decision of the parents. Genesis is suggesting this union of the man and woman is just as fundamental and just as much a part of the fabric of creation as anything else God made. In the first chapter of Genesis, we got the God's eye view of creation, so to speak, the creation of heaven and earth. There, God's word is the means of creation. And in Genesis 2, God's word is the test of obedience. Mm. The relationship between God and humans now involves what we might call a covenant. God speaks the standard. Mm -hmm. Humans are supposed to keep the standard. God's word sets the parameters of the relationship and defines the terms of God's rule and creation. Humans have to listen to that word in order to function as God's image. They have to live faithfully in it and exercise their role in creation according to it. Genesis 2 ends with the declaration that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
At this point in the larger story of Genesis, humanity has nothing to hide. Everything in God's created dominion stands before God as God intended. Does it stay that way? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's a spoiler, I know. Uh, (laughs) But no, it doesn't stay that way. As soon as human beings have the choice, they revolt. And the results are catastrophic. But that's the story for the next episode and for chapter three of Genesis. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening.